Hello and thanks for joining us. You're listening to the Citation Podcast with me, Michael Brown, Health and Safety Content Manager at Citation. The 10th of October marks World Mental Health Day, which aims to raise awareness of mental health issues around the world and to mobilise efforts in support of mental health. In this episode, I'll be joined by my colleague and Citation's very own Head of HR, Jenny Ware, where we'll be discussing tips for employers when it comes to supporting your employees' mental health and well-being. So, welcome to the podcast, Jenny. Thanks, Michael. It's a pleasure to be here. So, for the benefit of our listeners, it's probably worthwhile us going into what your role is at Citation and how that crosses over into the sort of mental health and stress management side. So, I'll hand it over to you to give us a bit of an overview. Well, I've worked in HR for over 20 years and I got into HR because I love people and I love business and that's a real connection point. And over the recent years, I've seen a real increase in the number of colleagues that present with mental health issues, the impact they have on families, on colleagues, on the business performance and on our clients. And it's become a bit of a passion of mine. Um, We introduced mental health first aid training shortly after I joined and I made sure that myself and all my team are trained up like that. And I'm really honoured to say that I've been able to help some colleagues through some very difficult times. I'm not a counsellor, I'm not there to do that, but I've been able to help signpost them in the right direction and help train our colleagues and our managers on how they can take care of their own mental well-being. And it's not perfect, it's really difficult, but it's something that I think we can all make small steps to improve continuously. Yeah, yeah it's so important. And um, as you say, I think it's important globally but uh, I mean the Mental Health First Aid England I think gave us some statistics a while ago saying I think mental health is responsible for about 72 million working days lost and that costs around 35 billion every single year and that's those are huge numbers I mean but to put it in a more sort of rounded perspective I think one in five people they say take a day off due to stress but over 90% of those people don't feel confident enough to actually cite that as a reason you know they'll say that they they've got a headache or they've got sickness or or something else causes huge impact to business and um, I should imagine quite a bit on productivity so of the measures that you put in at citation which ones have you noticed have the biggest impact on employees and how is that reflected in data so are we getting more people uh declaring are we getting less absence how how do you see that uh within the business here i think it's quite difficult to put a specific label on which initiatives has had the biggest impact and before we get into those individual initiatives i'll take a step back and talk about the fact that we have far more cases of mental ill health being reported than we have done in previous years and i think that's partly down to just the media coverage and it's becoming more normal it's getting high profile it's becoming much easier to talk about mental health in a in an easy way it's no it's not quite such the stigma that it used to be although that still plays a huge part and um I think what we've actually seen by introducing our awareness programs and our main, I'd say the main driver for us is to make mental health treated in the exact same way as physical health so that colleagues feel comfortable talking about it and businesses feel comfortable dealing with it when it comes up, that we're not frightened of it, that it's an honest and open, supportive conversation that enables us to tackle things up front. And what we've actually found by 
putting more focus on it, you might think it's been unsuccessful because we've seen an increase in the number of people talking to their line managers and the HR team and the mental health first aiders about their mental health. But to me, that's a win because it means that we can tackle things earlier. We can help people deal with their issues. We can put in place the right support programs, which means the impact is much smaller than if it's left untreated or unresolved. It can result in much bigger absences. So once you get someone signed off sick with a mental health condition or stress, generally that's going to be several weeks, if not months. And then you're looking at phase return to work, adjusted duties. And the knock-on is much bigger than if you can support somebody with a small initiative upfront and early. So something as simple as helping somebody deal with, um, they might be going through a relationship breakup at home, which is having a big impact on them. They might be seeing solicitors, they might be seeing their bank about different arrangements or mortgage advisors or have to do different childcare arrangements. Being flexible with their working hours temporarily even to help them through that can help alleviate a lot of that stress so it might not be a work-related stress issue but it's impacting on their work because they're feeling under pressure because they're coming in late or taking time off and supporting them through that they'll pay you that back in spades and they'll be better mentally the team will feel better about it all they'll see you treating people right and it has all these knock-ons so I guess if I were to answer your question of what's the one initiative to improve things it's trying to get it treated openly and as normally as possible and treat people with human respect and dignity and they pay you back you know that would be my main pointer I think you're absolutely right and one of the key things you mentioned there was that actually it people see it quite often in isolation it's like oh so and so has been signed off but what they don't see is that it means that someone else has to pick up that workload someone else has to pick up that slack and quite often they're then if it's for instance someone in a management position you've got a team of people there with no manager and no guidance and no support who are then being given that responsibility so you're absolutely right in the same way that the good ethics of positive mental health management can spread so so can the workload and the stress that was already there that led to the initial case um i mean it's what's interesting is i don't think a lot of businesses realize that uh, stress and sort of mental health in particular are things that they should be looking at as part of their health and safety management system. Uh, the management regulations uh, actually specifically you know, say that you've got to demonstrate good practice through step-by-step risk assessed approach. So part of that, they give you six, I think it is, key areas of um, policy that you need to look at. So the demands on an individual, like their workload and their work patterns. So that's something you mentioned about the flexible working. Um, how much control does that person have in what they do and how they do their work? So are they working to a really specific procedure? And obviously certain things are safety critical, but other things aren't. And you might actually want to consider giving your employees a bit more flex. Um, support, you know, how much encouragement do they have and you know, what sort of resources are they given, including line management? You, A lot of people always say, oh, we've got an open door policy. Um, but they don't really you know you come to people with problems and they go oh well that's your sort it out um yeah it's not something that we ha- suffer from here i don't think but the other thing that's really crucial is relationships as well and you know, how do people get on you know are, are, is the conversation sort of promoted you know, if someone's saying you know, I, i'm feeling really stressed out is that sort of swept under the carpet or actually is it is someone actually taking ownership of that and also look at what the roles are as well and whether people understand what their roles are. I can imagine quite a few people, and I've, I've had an employer in the past, where um, I didn't really 
sort of know exactly what the breadth of the role were. And that was really stressful because I found I was responsible for stuff that I had no idea I was responsible for. And then uh, you end up sort of feeling like, oh goodness, how do I do this and where do I go? And the other thing um, that a lot of people find is hard to address in the workplace, and this is a particular thing with the pandemic, is change. You know, there's a massive change in um, technology at the moment. Um, I think they're saying we're going for another industrial revolution, which I could believe. Um, you know, there's huge changes in the way people work, the remote working of the pandemic, um, the breakdown of the relationships in the office and this sort of whole unfamiliarity. So you know, those management standards are really important. And again, as part of an employee's duty, they really should be recording that on a risk assessment and sharing that with their employees. It's it's just it's bizarre in a way to think that it's taken society this long to give the parity that's required between sort of mental health and well-being with physical health because if if someone you know, turned up and said oh, i've broken my arm i can't do my job you you'd sort of go oh right well fair enough it's sitting physical if someone's suffering so much mentally that they can't do the work um yeah, that's that's just as bad as a physical break what we find is that um the, the the medical professions they do a comparison between certain mental health conditions and physical conditions and it's really surprising things like severe depression are treated more seriously than something like a stroke in terms of the impact on somebody and it's it, when you look at it in that stark difference things that we've been quite flippant about as a community as a nation for so long they're actually massively impactful in terms of the individual and what they can do so you know you're quite right about that element of how serious we take things and how easy it is to talk about them and fix them um when you're talking about those um six different control measures there was a couple of things that sprang to mind really for me um, one is that um i love using um the individual stress risk assessments that we have and i don't just use it when somebody's telling me that they're stressed or whether they're saying it's work-related stress i think it's just a really really good tool to use because it breaks down each of those six areas into some really simple questions to ask yourself and it's things like what's impacting me helping me be my best in this area and it's a really useful tool to use whether you're stressed or not because it's all focused on how do you get the best out of your performance? And that's what stress is. It's where pressure becomes something negative that is affecting your performance. So using that that sort of individual stress risk assessment with somebody to go through in those six areas, what is it that's affecting you personally? And I've used that with some colleagues here who are really familiar with their condition, really familiar with the impact of their job. And we did that exercise with them and they went, oh my God, I hadn't realised that one thing there was really impacting me right now because we're human and we change and we evolve. And doing that exercise with this colleague, she walked away from with feeling much more positive. From a, She felt almost hopeless before because she'd done so much work to try and help her in her situation. And the individual stress risk assessment gave her the opportunity to try and identify that one thing that would make a difference if we changed the dial on it. And it was really impactful. Um, and that stuck with me for quite a long time. Um, I think the other thing for me is that you were talking about those six areas. There's something we talk about a lot in colleague engagement, and it's having a say-do gap. You know, it's doing what you say you're going to do and believing in it. So if you say we're going to put in place things to control the pace of your work or um, the, the clarity of your role or things to help you deal with your mental health, and then you don't deliver them, it's so impactful, so damaging. You have to stick with it and deliver what you're going to say you're going to do. And if you don't believe you can do it, don't say it. 
I see it from from the employer's point of view. If you if you did promise those things and didn't deliver it, really, it's just them saying, "Oh, well, you know, we're going to put some window dressing on it, but we don't really care." So yeah. I think you're right. Even yeah, it's better to put something simple and actionable in place rather than something you know, promise on the world when it's not actually achievable. I mean, I, I suppose with um, from a turning it around from an employer's point of view, what sort of signs would they? Yeah, could they look for in their workplace perhaps yeah and I'm thinking here there's one of them that always comes to mind is um, yeah, people sort of notice there's always an employee that seems to work over the hours and, and um, yeah, far too far over the hours and they're it, culturally we sort of go oh yeah they're a go-getter it could actually be that they're really stressed and they're desperately trying to keep their head above water and then you've got the other end of the scale where you might have people that aren't putting in quite so many hours and Actually, it might simply be that they're so demotivated by this point that they can't actually give any more in a way. Are there any other sort of um, ways of determining that and sort of symptoms that you might look out for? The key for me in all things mental health related is put the individual at the heart of it, whether it's at that stress risk assessment and them understanding what's impacting them Um or here where you're looking for what might be impacting, you know, for people who might be suffering with mental ill health or um, stress. And let's face it, we all have mental health, you know, just like we all have physical health. And some days we're going to be better than others for a variety of reasons. And mental health is just the same. So it's for me, it's all about understanding the individuals in your team and who they are and what they're like, because what you're looking for is the subtle differences. My husband, for instance, absolute workaholic. The way that he gets through his life is he plows in the hours. He'll openly say, sorry, hubby, that he's not the smartest cookie, but he puts the graft in to get to where he needs to be. And if I restricted him and said he could only work nine till five, he would be very stressed because he's lost one of his control mechanisms. Um, so it's about understanding that individual. So somebody looking at him and he does work long hours, he might say, you might say he's stressed, but actually he's not because he's got that control and that's how he achieves what he wants to achieve. So it's really understanding the people that you work with, the people around you and looking for those subtle differences. Like in my team, um, I've got a couple that, you know, every single day they come in, they look absolutely immaculate. And if one day they didn't come in looking quite so immaculate, I know there's something wrong because that to them is part of who they are and what they do every day. Another colleague talks a lot about her dog and going for a walk with it. So if she suddenly stopped talking about those things or it didn't sound like she was getting as much enjoyment from it, I would know there's something happening and I need to understand a bit more about it. It doesn't mean I'm accountable for what's going on in her personal life or how much she loves a dog, but it's a sign that she's not getting enjoyment from the things that she normally would and therefore there's probably something else going on underlying it. You know, and those changes in the way somebody acts or what they do that might come through in a deterioration in their standards. So they might start arriving late or putting in um, less accurate work or take longer to do things. Um, you might see more errors or accidents. Um, you know, I often describe feeling stressed as it's like a tornado. You start off at the top going around quite slowly, but you just, it's an ever decreasing circle. You're just getting tighter and tighter and it's harder to break away. And whilst you're getting that tied up in your own brain, um, it's harder to take a step back and to look at fixing things. So no, being able to recognise those changes in your colleagues and being able to check in with them is really important. Um, I know, for instance, when I'm getting towards the point of I've got too much on and I need to take a step back and just reset myself, um, I will 
not be sleeping enough because I'll be trying to cram everything in. I'll be doing too many hours to, in my personal life, my work life. I'll just be trying to squeeze more in and sleep less. That generally just makes me quite grumpy and a little bit angry, shorter tempered, much harder for me to make decisions. You know, and I recognize these things in myself, um, usually not as quick as those that love me notice them, I have to say. But once I've noticed them, I then go, right, I need to take a different step. I either need to scale something back at home or at work, or I need to reprioritize because I'm trying to deliver too many things at once. Again, whether that's home or work, um, I need to prioritize getting more sleep. Um, and my hobby again would probably say I need to prioritize eating more often so that I don't get hangry because that does have an impact on, I, on me and the others around me. I think we can all relate to being hangry, but is it because actually quite a lot of what it sounds as though, and it's quite a bit of an education, I suppose, for me in a way, sounds as though we manifest things very, fairly similarly. Well, the first thing people would notice about me is I'm usually quite bright and breezy. I'm grouchy and I'm not normally that grouchy, but if I haven't slept or I haven't eaten, then yeah, I absolutely am. And let's face it, we're not trying to be little, you know, we're not downplaying people's mental health by saying, you know, you're a bit grouchy or I get a bit hungry, but it's that level of sort of self-awareness in yourself and others being aware of what's changed in you can be really, really powerful in terms of staying healthy mentally, you know, rather than just focusing on when things have gone wrong, actually, how do you stay in that optimum optimum space for you to be able to be happy have a great family life have a great work life and perform at your very best so you know whilst I'm slightly flippant about it I think it's really important that you, you take that time to understand yourself and the others around you to help stay in that best space I think you're absolutely right one of the one of the interesting things and I suppose one of the I can I can hear some so I could hear our listeners sort of going yes but how would I address that how how would you have those conversations for instance you take the I, I can imagine the colleagues you're talking about actually who spend ages um, well I'm assuming ages but they look a million dollars every time they turn up to the office how you know, if they did turn up looking slightly less a million dollars how would you approach <laughs> that and how many times would you sort of because it might just simply be that they've decided you know that's no longer a priority for me I'm going to do something different or it might be that you know, heaven forbid it's awkward because they have spent ages <laughs> and to us they still look a bit <laughs> you know like tired I, I mean I, I can yeah what just to avoid the sort of potential awkwardness of a bit of you know, the it's the classic faux pas isn't it almost saying oh well, yeah. you look a bit tired and someone going oh I spent ages and I slept really well thanks yeah, yeah. um how would you sort of if you had one tip of not making it awkward or you know how would that how would that go i think it's much easier when you know somebody really well because you can know whether you can take them the you know take the mickey a little bit with them have a bit of a laugh and a joke to find out what's going on or whether you need to take them off for a quiet meeting one to one or whether it's fine you just know that they're out till whatever time having a great time and that's why they're, they're not quite where they would normally be you know it's about understanding that individual where you can um and it might be that first day that you notice something a bit different it's just going hey michael are you all right today and they go yeah i'm fine why are you asking just checking in you know and it could be as simple as that um it could be that you you know you, you plan a, a much more um well-prepared conversation where you think about the setting you think about the type of thing and it's going hey michael the last few times we've met you've not been quite your normal bright and breezy self you know i'm just a little bit worried is everything all right with you and it's that sort of like constructed conversation it's a little bit more um, built in and you probably wouldn't do that in front of the whole team you probably wouldn't do that when you're in the middle of an open plan office or a team meeting so that you're giving them that that chance just to have that conversation or it could just be engineering to bump into them in the kitchen at work when you're having a making a, a brew and just sort of saying 
you're not quite yourself today. Is everything all right? And they might go, yeah, I'm fine. Why do you say that? And, you, you know, you'd then need a couple of examples of, well, you were just a bit quieter in the team meeting or, you know, you just didn't quite come across your bubbly self. Whatever that kind of, and I wouldn't recommend saying, you don't look like you've done your makeup today because that's not <laughs> going to go down well. Um, but having those kind of, you're just not quite yourself at the moment, might be a more generic conversation. And if they say they're fine, great. And you can always just say, well, you know, I'm here if you ever need me. Just checking in with you because it's important that, you know, we're all good. Join us after the break where we'll be discussing top tips on how to help your employees with their mental health and well-being. Welcome back. Before the break, we were discussing the best way of approaching mental health conversations with your employees and useful tips on how to address them. We're going to return to this topic now, but we're going to look a little bit about remote working. So, Jenny, if I can just ask you uh, the similar question, but in a slightly different line. If you're a business, perhaps, that's working remotely, so either mainly over Zoom or Teams, or perhaps you've got employees on different sites and you don't always see them on a daily basis, are there any sort of differences in the way that you might approach how you identify whether there is you know, a requirement for a mental health sort of intervention? And if so, how would you go about that? So I think there's a few things that can be really useful. If you could put in place something in your business like broad training for managers on mental health awareness and looking for signs, that can help pick stuff up a lot sooner, a lot easier. Um, as well, having things like mental health first aiders trained in the business that are easily available. So they, it's a reach out point because it is much harder when you're not seeing somebody physically or regularly to spot those signs. You know, you wouldn't necessarily notice whether or not they've changed in their appearance. Um, so I think when you're working remotely or not with somebody all the time, building that trust up is really important, getting to know them as individuals still. And that means building that into your diary and we all saw how difficult it was when we started working differently in the, over the past 18 months you know actually it feels really alien to put in the diary make time for a chat with Michael but that's the kind of stuff that you need to do so that it's there so that you can check in with people and look for those signs and you're building that relationship if the first time you're having a conversation about somebody you know it's quite detailed and quite personal is when um, something's going wrong that's going to be really hard for them to open up so building it might feel a bit alien and not productive but building that time for some chit chat for understanding each other understanding what's going on in our personal lives is really important I think what you can also do is look at things like your metrics for your sickness, absence, or your attendance. They can give you an indication if something's beginning to change in there or your productivity. They can be all really useful measures that you can look at, definitely. And I think whether you're having a conversation, a difficult conversation like this with somebody in person or remotely, really thinking about the setting and the timing is important. So I'm a morning person. If you ring me up at four o'clock, I'm in my dozy phase, you know, I need some chocolate to boost me up. So that might be a really good time to, to go, should we go off site and just grab a coffee and I'll, I'll jump at the chance and then you might be able to slip in a conversation that might be slightly more difficult because you're in a different setting. And there's tons of research that says if you're trying to have a difficult conversation, doing it while you're doing something else, physical, like the washing up or driving a car, it's so much easier than when you're doing it sat across a table from somebody face to face and you're just staring at each other. And I think it's something to do with your brain that's absorbed doing the physical activity, even if that's going for a walk, um, can really free your brain up to talk openly about difficult issues. So if you're remote, that might be that you say, well, why don't we take our mobiles and go for a walk while we're having this conversation? Because you're then freeing them up to, to think differently and talk differently. Um, it might be that you're building it into the part of the day when you know they're going to be least stretched. 
you know, if they're working in the care sector and you know that lunchtime is always dead busy because you've got loads of handovers and food and moving um, uh, patients around the, the facility, then avoid that time because they're not going to have the time to open up, you know, pick a time when they know they've got a bit more space and capacity. So it comes down to a bit about understanding them, their role, what time of the day might be a good space for a conversation. Um, Zoom can be your friend. Sometimes it's your enemy. So, you know, you start staring down the lens at a screen. It's really hard sometimes just to open up and to talk openly and if, if someone's a bit um fearful of of getting upset they might not want to be on camera because they don't want to be seen to be upset so just trying to understand that person and just pick the right space and if it doesn't work the first time don't be afraid of trying another point in time to go but genuinely are you all right i know you'd got a lot on your plate last time when we were talking about your mom and your 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 kids school or whatever else you know you can just revisit it again and with that genuine air of concern give them the opportunity not the what we do every morning of hey Michael how are you today because that doesn't get you anywhere it's that genuine level of look how are things at the moment I think the other thing is um, from what you're saying it sounds as though it's letting the employee feel they can come to you with not with problems necessarily but um, I suppose it's it's trying to become one of those people that isn't going to go, oh, what's wrong with you then? Or what's wrong now? Yeah. Um, you know, or, uh, oh, you know, I think what you should do is this because it worked for me. I think even if you do have solutions that you might want to give someone, um, it's about, and I've been guilty of this before as well, you saying to people that you, friends of mine were, oh, you, you should do this. And actually what I mean is you should, you know, perhaps you should consider doing this because it worked for me. And I'm not giving them an instruction. It's sort of a, here's a solution you might want to think about. But it's so hard sometimes to get the language right. You're spot on with that. And I think there's a really great illustration I'd use before we get into some examples of that. There's, um, you know, you've probably heard of it. It's like a bit of a modern day parable, I guess, where a lecturer gives a student uh, a glass of water that's half full and asks them to stand with their arm out straight holding it. And how does that feel? That's okay. That's not heavy. I can do that. And then they say, what about in half an hour? You know, what about in an hour? What about in a day? And that's impossible to hold out that that glass. It's really lightweight for any period of time. And sometimes carrying emotional baggage, shall we say, or, or issues that we've got gets like that. You know, you'd, you'd, if you've had a tough weekend, you've been to some difficult event or some difficult life issue that's gone on. Just sometimes having five minutes to drop off that baggage with somebody and just go, yeah, it was a bit tough at the weekend. This happened. It's, you've relieved it. You know, it's gone. And it actually means that you can move on. But if you've carried that around with you, it just gets heavier and heavier and bigger and bigger. So giving your colleagues the space to be able to voice their concerns when they need to really simply can be really really beneficial obviously you don't want it to become just a moaning situation where you're then just feeding that or becoming their counselor so getting that balance can be right but them knowing they can come to you and talk to you is really powerful definitely i think it's the the old adage a problem shared is a problem halved or something isn't it yeah Um, and it's free to listen you know you can invest that time and it's going to come back to you loads so never underestimate the value of just listening to somebody and then you talked as well there about actually um trying to solutionize for people Usually the very worst thing that you can do is jumping in with what's the solution of what they need to do and using a more coaching technique to help them come up with a solution that's going to work for them is really powerful. And by a coaching technique, that's about asking them questions in a guided way to help them get to a solution. So, for instance, Michael said um, 
for instance, he might he might feel better if he had more sleep in his life. So me telling him what you need to do is go to bed then early so you can get a good night's sleep. <laughs> There's every chance that he's then going to go, yeah, whatever, what do you know? You don't know what's going on in my life. But sort of saying, Michael, what do you think could, could help? You know, what's going to help you feel better straight off? You know, and he would probably say getting a good night's sleep brilliant so what's your plan for tonight and michael might say well i've got to do this 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 and this and this so probably go to bed about 11 is that going to give you enough sleep michael and you'll you may say yeah it will or actually probably not okay so what what could you do differently is there anything you can drop off that list so you're coaching through that solution without taking the ownership without taking the burden on yourself and without just jumping straight in with a well just go to bed earlier then that's simple and you're helping them figure it out for themselves. And that's going to be much more long lasting and impactful than you just jumping in with telling them what it should be. Absolutely. It's, it's interesting the, um, you talk about sleep. Um, it really does. I think that's one of the main drivers for people. It's certainly one of the indicators I have. If, I'm, if I know <clears throat> I run off about five hours, five and a half hours sleep a night. So if someone said to me, oh, you get more sleep, I'd be like, well, I, I would if I could. But the reality is quite often I'm just not tired enough. And um, it's, I had someone say, oh, I remember them saying to me, yeah, well, to make yourself feel tired, you should do this. And it was something It was something like, um, oh, I should make sure I, it was something like count to 100. And it just really frustrated me. And actually, I was then more awake. So I think even, I, I suppose the message here is no matter how well-intentioned solutions might be, it's more about the delivery and giving people you know, yeah. the space to come up with their own. Yeah, and sometimes it might be useful to make some suggestions and say, do you know what I found really helps me drop off is listening to a podcast or putting on like white noise on Spotify. Have you tried anything like that? Did it work for you? Did it not? You know, is it worth giving it a go? So you're not telling them, but you're kind of giving those options that they might want to look at. And um, I think as well, whether you're remote or you're face to face, some of these problems are going to be far, far too big for you to fix. And that is one of the most powerful things that you can remember as an individual in terms of giving yourself permission to deal with something. Because quite often people are scared of, well, what if I can't help? What if, especially if you've got a situation, say, like someone who's talking about self-harm or suicide, what if I make it worse? I'm going to hold back because I don't know how to fix that. Quite often, just talking to somebody finding out what's going on and then encouraging them to get the appropriate help can be massive. And that not carrying the guilt that I didn't fix something, I didn't help them. You can't because you haven't got those skills. Um, and getting them in touch with the right people can be really powerful. That's where people like your mental health first aiders are really useful because they're trained in helping to spot different things and know different points to send people towards. But as colleagues, as managers, you know, especially if you can invest a little bit in training them, helping them understand when's the right time to point somebody in the right direction. So your GP is always a brilliant space to go to. If you're ever worried about somebody, encourage them to go and talk to their GP. And did you know that you can now self-refer yourself on the NHS to get talking therapies as well, which is brilliant. You know, you've got free resources there that are there and available, whereas I think quite often we assume it's going to take ages to get through a GP. I'm not going to get to see anybody, especially with the pandemic where you can't get physical appointments very often. Um, there's lots of things that you can do. And if you're employed, um, if you're in work, there are certain programs that the government run as well through Remploy or Able Futures, where um, it's about trying to keep people in work with mental health um, challenges. And to use those, certainly with Remploy and access to work, you don't need 
a referral from your employer. You don't need um, a diagnosed medical condition. You just need to basically saying, my mental health is affecting me at work. And they'll do some assessments and I've not known anybody to be rejected from them. And they sign you up to a six to nine month um, course of monthly sessions with somebody. And they're not a counsellor. It's entirely focused on practical tips of how to help you be your best, you know, to stay well, to stay in work and to overcome the things that might be challenging you in that work environment and it's all free so and the employer doesn't need to know about it you can do those things off your own back equally it's really powerful when you do tell your employer that's what you want to do or or as an employer you point your colleagues towards your employees towards those services like the free ones through employee because it shows that you care it shows that you're investing in them without you know you actually having to find the funding from it somewhere so it's usually quick and easy to access and you know that they're getting support from a professional that's got skills in this area that you might not have. And that's really powerful. There are other um, ways employers could actually help as well. I think there are employee assistance programmes too that people can sign up for. Oh, They can be phenomenal in terms of helping if they're used in the right way. So if you had an employee assistance programme and you just spammed your new starters and said, here's the employee assistance programme, here's the number, it's probably not going to get a lot of uptake. But having it available to colleagues and reminding them of it regularly and at points in time when they are struggling with something, anything at all can be really useful because they are a 24-hour helpline. They're manned by professionals. They point you to the right direction. You can usually get you know, up to, say, six counselling sessions through them. You can uh, talk to specialists. So if you're struggling with your finances, and let's face it, that's tons of our friends, family and colleagues at the moment with the pandemic and the impact of all of those things. Um, they can put you through to a specialist that can help with that. If your kid's struggling at school with bullying or with school discipline processes or whatever it is, they'll have a specialist that you can talk to and get advice on it. And the brilliant thing about the employee assistance programs, the EAPs, they are confidential. So your employer will never know what your employee has talked about in it. They will know that it's being used. They'll probably get reports that say how often it's used or for what services, like it was called four times in the past year for counselling or for two for counselling and two for financial services. But you, you don't know any more than that. So you just know that it's helping those people. That's probably a really good indicator of, um, I suppose, the state of mental health and well-being. How many, if you do have a program like that, how many people are using it? What for? Might actually help you as an employer shape your benefits package, or um, even just the way people are working in a way you're, you're going to know if suddenly you have an upswing of people accessing mental health support. I think as well, what you find is um, it's a comfort blanket. So even if people don't dial it. I think it's still really valuable because people know it's there if they need it. You know, it's a bit like we know the NHS is there if we get sick, but it doesn't mean we're going to see the GP every day to to get an appointment and to get checked out. But we know it's there if we need it. And the employee assistance programme can be really useful um, if you're going through restructuring, you know, sort of saying, if you're worried about this, you can use this number to, to find out a bit more. You know, if you're worried about stresses at work, you can use this number. Lots of people won't call it because they don't feel that they're, quite bad enough yet to ring that number but they know it's there they know they've got that backup and that can be so powerful in terms of putting some of that control you know if you remember back of those six indicators of you know your control mechanisms in stress that's giving them a control back that they have in their power so I'd be wary of just using it as a sole indicator of your mental health in the business but it's definitely an indicator you could look at. Well, Jenny, what would you say are your sort of top three takeaway tools that would be the most effective for uh, any sort of given workplace? 
I think it's trying to reduce that stigma up front to creating culture where it's normal to talk about your mental health is super powerful. And um, understanding the individual will help you identify potential issues earlier on and therefore put in place solutions. And whenever you're looking for a solution, focus on that individual, not what you think will work, not what you've seen work somewhere else, but what that individual really needs in there. And then I think it's probably trying to equip yourself and your line managers with some different practical tools that you can use because there's never you shouldn't use all of them all the time it's about trying to figure out what's the right tool at that point in time so you've got things like we've talked about using Remploy or Able Futures as an external provider you've got the employee assistance programs if you've if you've bought one in you could use those there's some really simple straightforward things you can use with your individual stress risk assessment that don't need to happen um all the time or waiting until someone's in crisis mode using them at a time to help someone perform at their best you could also use something called a wrap a wellness recovery action plan which you can find examples on the mind website which is all again about understanding what helps somebody perform at their best what detracts from their performance or their mental well-being and therefore it plans these are the things that make me uh feel worse mentally or affect my performance and my mental health therefore how do we avoid those and when we see uh, what how do I change when I'm in a not so well mental health state and therefore once we identify that what actions do we take to bring you back in track quicker so that we you know and that's between the colleague and the employer it's it's both ways and then you've got really simple things like a stress bucket which is as simple as you draw a bucket on a piece of paper and you write all your stresses in there. And when I did this exercise in training for my mental health first aid, I thought, well, that's ridiculous. Nothing's stressing me out. And so just put down anything on there. It could be any niggles. It could be like, you know, you're stuck in the traffic jam for 10 minutes. So you were, you missed the favorite parking spot in the car park, whatever. Um, and at the end of the exercise, I was like, whoa, 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 I'm still writing things down. And my bucket was full of all these little things, which was like my kid had forgotten her swimming kit. So I'd had a phone call from the school and I hadn't fixed the guttering yet. And I still needed to finalize the Tesco order. And what I realized was my life was full of hundreds of little stresses. I'm very, very lucky that I don't have one major stressor in my life. I don't have anything major going wrong. Um, but trying to tackle all of those hundred little things makes it impossible for me to do any of them and I can quickly feel like I'm failing or I'm falling behind and then that will create further failure you know it kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy so actually recognizing that I've got a lot on and I can't do it all and trying to focus on the things that are going to have the biggest impact or the most urgent or the things that'll just make me feel better because sometimes making yourself feel better is a really good starting point so with that bucket you put all your stresses in you create the tap which is your control mechanism which might be like I've just described my way of prioritizing what I'm going to work on um your tap might include um coping mechanisms like exercise I love going for a walk it just really clears my mind um I'd like the odd glass of wine um but equally if I drank too much that wouldn't wouldn't be a healthy coping mechanism anymore it would be an unhealthy one so just trying to recognize those factors and that kind of exercise it doesn't cost you anything it can help somebody really reset themselves really quickly rather than it just being I don't know how to handle this I don't know how to help you it's another tool to help them empower themselves so when you talked about what's my top three it would be things like reducing the stigma understanding the individual understanding a raft of different tools that are available to you including encouraging somebody to get medical professional help because you won't have all the answers all the time and I guess they would be my top three if you could take them away 
Well, thank you for sharing those tips with us, Jenny. You've given us all a lot to think about on this subject. We're coming to the end of today's podcast episode. Jenny, thank you very much for being part of it and joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I hope it's been useful. And thank you to our listeners too for joining us on this episode today. If you're in need of the backing of any of Citation's experts on any of the subjects we discussed today, get in touch with us at podcast at citation.co.uk. If you're already a Citation client, feel free to give our advice line a call, or alternatively, you can access our useful resources and guides on the website at www.citation.co.uk. Thank you. Goodbye. Goodbye.